Hey, this is Mark Brownstein from the Disco Biscuits, and you're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to Inside Out with... Turner. And Seth, we're here live on digital. We're actually recording this show here at Terminal West in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a small room. If you, any of you know Sayreville, um, New Jersey, it's kind of like the Star room, Starland Ballroom here. There, It's like an 800-seat room, would you say? I wouldn't say seat. I'd say more like 800-standing room. It's got the station-side restaurant to the side, which has excellent, extremely healthy food, particularly and for a music venue. A more s- importantly than the venue is the yes. bands that come through here, because they have so many amazing bands. This is the spot in Atlanta where bands come. This is the spot. And tonight and tomorrow night... They have the Disco Biscuits. That's right. The Disco Biscuits are in town doing a show here tonight. Actually, Mark Brownstein's here today to do an interview. And With then, us. <laughs> and then they're going to be doing a performance here tonight at Terminal West, heading to the show on the festival grounds tomorrow afternoon evening. Playing immediately before Kid Rock on the same stage. And then following that, doing a late night set right back here at Terminal West. So that's th- what? That's that's a that's a lot of biscuits. And we are here on the open-air section in the back of Terminal West, which bumps up against the uh, railroad tracks, so you might, you, might, you might hear a little interesting something. I want a couple quick thank yous. Dan Cox for helping get us set up, and he actually just risked life and limb to climb up on a bar to reach up and turn off a speaker that was uh, um, creating some... Uh, Awful background well, noise. It, it, it was, it was the, they were doing the uh, drum check. They were testing the toms. In there, so any rate... We'll stop there. But it's gone. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. What a wonderful room. Um, they've had a lot of great shows here, and we're very happy. We're very, we're, we're very happy that Mark is going to take a little time out because they have an extremely tight schedule this yes. week. Speaking of being tuned, Rob Turner last night went to see one of his favorite musicians and actually did not scare the musician away. This is a first, folks. Well, this is a first. Well, I wouldn't say it's a first, but it, it, he is kind of a poster child. Uh, if any of you have listened to our previous shows, and you should have. If you haven't, go back and listen to them. They're all on iTunes. Inside Out, the Utinius.com. But I, this Robin Hitchcock, I've often uh, had less than favorable interactions with over the years. But last night I had a podcast. I had a card. We've had nice interactions you on Twitter. Your card. I brought my card. Look Seth made these beautiful cards for us. Because you said, you know, Seth, people don't really take me seriously. I need a card. They don't, and they don't really remember. They're like, oh, you got a podcast or whatever, and then they're gone. They forget. Now, if they have a card, they're less likely to forget. I think what you should do is take their information and then email them every day so that they get. A reminder to you know, go ahead. No, they should that. want, they should want to just be on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But it's with it's with heavy heart that we do this week's show. It is very very very. As very there is show. a uh, as there is an elephant in the room. <laughs> we lost one of the greats in the history of music. One of the greatest composers, songwriters, composers and songwriters. How about that? Uh, and performers, Prince. Uh, Prince, yes. On the on the way into our pre-con meeting here. Um, a lunch meeting at Ornsby is a great restaurant in the West End of Atlanta. Um, my wife texted me, and I could not believe it. I thought she was joking at first. I was like, oh, which, by the way, that's a terrible joke. Um, but I Rob, think for the rest is- of my life, I'll remember walking in. As I'm just entering the restaurant, Seth saying the words, Prince is dead? I mean, they're still echoing in my head. My wife um, got to see his last performance. She, she heard the news um, while at the nail salon and then had to be consoled and became kind of the center of the salon, apparently. 
she kind of broke down in the salon. So very sad. Very heavy news for us music fans. Neither of your hosts have ever seen Prince. I can't wait to ask our guest if he ever saw them or or saw him or... I mean, the only chance I really had to see him was this this last week, last Thursday's last shows here at the Fox Theater, and uh, I was out of town. And those shows were rescheduled from a time when I wasn't in town, so I just you know was, was striking out. But um, but yeah, I mean that's uh, yeah. The, I, I first um, I remember first like really getting into Prince and getting excited about his music, and you know what brought me there? Miles Davis. Of all things, just reading up on Miles Davis and, and, you know, I mean, of course I grew up, you know, Purple Rain. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I knew Prince, but something about when I was reading up and really getting into Miles Davis that I, that I really learned about, uh, all the, the creativeness that that man was. And he, he's, he, uh, can you imagine how many musicians that are around today have been inspired by his legacy? And I can't imagine interviewing him because apparently if you interviewed him, no notes, no recording. He didn't want his, quote, voice stolen, end quote. So uh, it would have been a challenge. I still would have done it. But conversation never, with Prince. He never, he never played uh, with his back to the crowd, though, at least, right? I mean, no, I remember Miles used to do that. There's a famous story of a Howard Stern went and saw him in a, in a private party in New York. And Prince insisted on performing in the dark. And apparently Mr. Stern left. I wonder if he'll regret that well, now. And you've, have you heard about the uh, Prince and Ping Pong? Apparently he took Ping Pong extremely serious. Questlove has a whole story about that uh, from The Roots. And he was talking about, like, Prince pulls up. I don't remember the whole story, but it was really good. Uh, it, Prince pulls up in a limo and is like, hey, let's play Ping Pong or something like that. And they play. And he was like, it, it sounded like a joke, but then the story's true. And Prince is, like, really serious. was really serious about his Ping Pong. And there's also a, a famous skit from the Chappelle show. That Charlie Murphy did about playing basketball at Prince's, and I suggest you mm-hmm. check YouTube for that. And there's a legendary bootleg. If we're gonna kick back to the Miles, Prince sat in with Miles at least once in Europe. I had a I had a recording of it. Absolutely ridiculous, sick performance. And I do believe it's on YouTube. We didn't have time to. Well, dig into your archives, Rob, because I would like to hear that. I want to read one thing. One just one paragraph of today's already out there New York Times obituary on Mr. Prince. All right. Prince recorded the great majority of his music entirely on his own, playing every instrument and singing every vocal line. Then, performing those songs on stage, he worked as a band leader in the polished, athletic, ecstatic tradition of James Brown, at once spontaneous and utterly precise, riveting enough to open a Grammy Awards telecast and play the Super Super Bowl halftime show. Often, Prince would follow a full-tilt arena concert with a late-night club show pouring out even more music on the Super Bowl. If not for 9-11, I think Prince would have been the greatest Super Bowl performance ever. The only reason being I, I hold you 2s most dear is because of their absolutely riveting, powerful, tear-inspiring tear <laughs> tribute to 9-11, which still brings chills to my mind, to my body, to think about. Well, what do you think? Are we ready? Uh, uh, we're ready, yeah. We're definitely ready to get into the interview. But there's other things to talk about before we do. There's, I, I did want to bring up a couple other things. Sure. Um, so we talked about Live Nation uh, purchasing Governor's Ball or the company that owns Governor's Ball. Yes. Founders. Founders. Right? Mm-hmm. Founders, yep, that's right. And um, apparently that's definitely true. So there's more news coming out about that. And then here's an interesting thing. AEG now apparently bought Bowery presents and all of the Bowery, what Bowery is. I mean, Bowery is a huge uh, footprint in New York and the whole 
the whole coast, and not just with venues, but uh, you know, and it was independent, right? Was it one of the largest independent ones in the country? One of the largest, yeah. So that that's pretty pretty big. And now keep in mind, you know, it's, we're not talking about uh, all like three thousand capacity rooms. They do have a lot of three thousand and and what you have you, but they do a lot of you know Terminal West size venues around the country, from what I understand. But there's a lot. I mean, that, this news just came out yesterday, so there's going to be a lot. Uh, a lot more to talk about about that here. Is this not a Bowery Presents room right here? No, but Bowery oh. does present shows here. Okay. It's, Bowery it's not South. one of the venues. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, and I don't know the details. I don't know if they, if they just bought Bowery Presents or the, you know, how, how that company's structure is Bowery South different than Bowery New York. I mean, I, I really don't know, but that's uh, something we probably should look into. And I think it would be a interesting, uh, an interesting show we should do uh, just talking about some of the the things happening with AEG and Live Nation, uh, who they've bought, and and then let's maybe even get a little deeper and talk to some of the folks that that they purchased and and hear how the their companies have changed if they changed at all. I mean, when they when Live Nation or AEG buys your your um, festival, does does things change? And if so, how much? Or how yeah? And I'm sure every deal is a little different, but but still, it's curious. And 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 on that curious note, Bowery is essentially a buy from AEG, similar to C3, the buy from Live Nation. So lots to talk about there, but I'm really excited to get our uh, guest here. Um, So let's go ahead and go downstairs and bring him on up. All right, we're going to go find Brownie, and we'll be with you. So stick around. In the meantime, we're going to go ahead and play just a little bit of Above the Waves. What do you say? Enjoy. Thank you. 
Our first guest is a founding member of the bands Electron and Conspirator. He's also a DJ and a founding member of the great Disco Biscuits. But perhaps more significantly, historically, he and Andy, he is a co-founder with Andy Bernstein of the great Head Count that's gotten so many young people to vote. Nonpartisan voter registration organization. We were, and, and even more importantly than that, I'm the co-founder of Brownstein Incorporated with my lovely wife, Deb Brownstein, where we ch- what our product is children. And we've churned out three incredible, uh, Zach, Aaliyah, and Shane. And that's, I think, probably our greatest accomplishment to date. Do they ever attend shows? Yeah, they, they will come to Camp Bisco, which is, of course, our festival up in <clears throat> Scranton, Pennsylvania, Montage Mountain, which is in July. And they'll come to the holiday series. In fact, children can come to the Dominican Holidays, which is a concert that we throw with Humphreys McGee and Sound Tribe Sector 9 every year in December. And uh, But back in the day when we first started it out, we did it in Jamaica. It was called Caribbean Holidays. Now, forget about the fact that fans will bring kids. You know, a small number of the fans will bring their kids down to the show at this point, but... Oh, everyone in Humphreys has kids. Everyone in Sound Tribe has kids. And Zach is sort of like the patriarch of the children. And know? also a DJ at the, at the festivals. Well, of course. Well, he, of course he performs at the festival. You know? he's, he's a lifer. He's been, he's been now in 11 years. I think, how many have we done? I think we're this is up on number nine or something. No, I think we're, 10? No, 10, we're on 10. Number yeah, 10. Yeah, Dominican Holidays is going to be the 10th. Holidays. Not, not that many people can say that they've been to all of the holidays. You know, everyone in Humphreys and Sound, and uh, sorry, the Biscuits, of course. Then, of course, Dave Van and myself. Dave Van and you and Zach. But you mentioned Camp Bisco. Now, that's, there's been many of those as well. I don't even know how many. And as uh, I don't know if any of you know, but it is a Disco Biscuits hosted festival. And is you, it like 15 now? And you have a wide variety of acts. I mean, a lot of a lot of EDM, but also you have rock acts in there. Humphreys has played there. Um, Though over the last two years, I they they end up playing near us on the weekend of campus. Go, so we have to better. I'm on a conference call with these guys like three times a week. Like, we we need to stay on at the end of the calls and just talk about what our routing is for a couple minutes. <laughs> you know, how do you select the acts for Camp Bisco? Very carefully. The band know. members are involved. Oh, yeah, of course. It's very, it's, it's, you know, over the years, we, we've been very involved and we've been less involved at times. And I think that part of the thing is that with our new partners at Live Nation, um, when we started with them, we had already booked the entire lineup. The lineup was booked. We lost our permits. We lost our promoter. And we had a lineup. And we needed a venue and a promoter. And we gave our friends a call and said, hey, that we're in a precarious situation right now. We know that you do Peach Festival up at Montage Mountain. Is there any chance in hell that that venue is available, you know, July 16th? This is now like 90 days out or like 100 days out from the, when the festival is supposed to be. And we've been just we've been dealing with one board after another board meeting of uh, trying to get the permits in upstate New York. And... It, very quickly, in a matter of like between like 36 and 48 hours, we went from just cold calling them to having a partnership in place with them where, you know, we, we determined that the land was available and we just went in and banged the deal out with them. And since we already had since we already had the lineup, it was one of those things where when we started our partnership with these new people, being directive about the lineup 
wasn't even a thing. It was like, here's our lineup. So when we went in this year, it was, it was, it was a very much a team effort. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we brought in a third party who is Ben Baruch, who's the manager of Big Gigantic. Also and, a guest that we want to have on our show at some point because uh, he's got his hands in a never, lot of things right now. You'll never get him. He writes, ne- we're going through the blog, though. You'll never get him. I love his blog. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> you, you can get him. We'll get him on this show. We're going to have to get him on the show. But Ben, um, he, he's a really interesting guy, and he, he, because of his involvement in all of the different things that he does, he knows so many agents and managers. and But more importantly than that, he's able to see what's going to be big before it's big. And that's something that the Meat Camp production guys were great at, the guys mm-hmm. who, the, the last promoters that we had at Camp Bisco. And it was that ability that the Meat Camp guys had to see talent and identify who was going to be big a year and two years down the line that made Camp Bisco you know that it, it took Camp Bisco and it turned it from a seven thousand person festival into a twenty five thousand person festival. You know, coupled with the growth on the on the disco biscuit side, when you took the growth of the the natural growth of the disco biscuits and you coupled it with this incredible ability to foresee talent and 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 other growth, it it, it was like lightning in a bottle. And, right. Mm-hmm. And so when we split off from MCP. One of the things that was really important to us was to have a partner, kind of a third-party independent partner that we trusted had that kind of a vision. Not that Live Nation doesn't have that kind of a vision. I'm sure that there's people over at Live. They've got a huge, huge you know, company. I'm sure there are people there that could pick talent. It's just a matter of it being somebody who's dedicated to that particular position. And mm-hmm. it went really well this year. He did, it, a, uh, he did a great job, and he calls me, and he calls Dave at Live Nation, and we all have these conference calls and just powwow over every little, you know, detail. And and well, with him doing talent buying now, he does talent buying. He just did the Okeechobee Festival, and I believe a couple other. Is he doing other events as well? Um, I know that he did Okeechobee Festival, and you know. I don't know if he's doing other outside of their own events that mm-hmm. they throw, like their rowdy town events and stuff That's like right, that. Yeah. But um, incredible asset. He's done a great job, and Live Nation has done such a great job. Mm-hmm. And, and and of course, they we owe a lot to them for saving our asses. Yeah, you know, at a time where it it could have all just gone away, and you know we would have had to rebuild from scratch. You know, and mm-hmm. since it's a gathering area for your most hardcore fans, you often have little special musical tidbits for them, right? You, you think you'll have something planned for this year? For Camp Bisco? Like, I remember there was a couple of years you debuted a bunch of new songs at Camp Bisco. Or yeah. Lasers well, a couple of years prior to Yeah, that. the Lasers came out of Camp Bisco. I mean, your fans always, kind of anticipate. I think that we always try to... Well, the thing is this. We, we only play like 10 or 12 weekends out of the year, so we try to make every one of them special. Sure, sure. You know, now we're at that point where we can do that, where we can say, okay, how? what are we going to... You know, let, let's look out. At New Year's and Halloween and all of these other dates, and say, you know, what, how are we going to, how do we make everything special? And I remember actually that was an influence early on that um, some people pointed out to us things that String Cheese Incident would do, you know, like the, just the idea of the word the incident, you know, it was very important to them. Everything was an incident, everything was a spectacle, everything was a big event. And, you know, that was. So everything with you all is a Bisco. Bisco, yeah, we used to say Bisco. For us, for us, we've adopted that sort of 
feeling we used to just tour like you know and we would tour and tour and tour and then we would have our big events but we've adopted the kind of strategy where everything is a big event especially if you're only going to do 10 or 12 weekends out of the year you know you just really have an obligation to make everything a spectacle and now we have city bisco well well, before we get to that here with 420 fest would did you guys uh take the offer for 420 festival and say hey can we top it with a in and out you know doing these extra shows here at t west or is that presented to you all no we we wanted to play more we knew that we knew that we were coming down here and it's one of those things where if you know if we're going to come down it's not always possible sometimes you know i don't know sometimes there are contract stipulations you know other times it's just there's not a venue or you know the the way that the travel is working it just doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense and so we'll go into minnesota and just play one night at the somerset festival sometimes that happens but if if it's possible we pretty much always attempt to slather on as much as we can you know you'll notice you know And, and in the in the cities where we're big enough, we'll play four nights or five nights, you know, like Denver and, and, and New York and Philly. We well, what about this City Bisco that you got coming up? That's that's just announced and is uh, seems pretty exciting. I believe you'll be one of the first acts at the Coney Island Amphitheater. Isn't that true? Yeah, well, they have a whole summer series going on this year. But, you know, from what, from what I hear, it's, you know, definitely at this point, it's going to be one of the biggest shows that they have. They're like, you know, we, we went on sale last week and... The pre-sale was enormous. It was, it was our biggest pre-sale we've ever had. Wow! In all of the years of of doing what we do, in twenty years, you know, and partially driven by the fact that in order to get into Irving, you had to buy a three-day ticket. And sure. so in a city like New York, where that's 1,100 guaranteed tickets. What he's saying is Irving, they're playing Irving Plaza August 18th and 19th, and then the Coney Island Amphitheater on the 20th. And, in, and, and we only sell tickets to Irving Plaza as part of a three-day package. Sure. And so that sort of guarantees that right at the beginning, before tickets ever even get on sale to the general public, we're going to have sold 1,100 tickets to the amphitheater. That was a foregone conclusion for us, and we knew that. What we didn't know or anticipate was, or what I personally didn't know or anticipate, was that they were going to put single-day Coney Island tickets on sale at the same time in the pre-sale, and that we were going to more than double the number before tickets went on sale to the general public in terms of those Coney Island show. So now we've sold 1,100 three-day packages and more, even more than a 1,100 single-day tickets, and if we hit the Friday, you know, basically ha- having already sold pretty much almost half of the venue for the Coney Island show. It's really, really exciting. But doesn't that, isn't that exciting? Doesn't that make you want to just, uh, not permanently, but maybe just do one national tour? Doesn't uh, no. You see there's the interest is out there. It's exactly the opposite. I think, it does I think exactly the opposite. It makes me... what uh, Chad was saying on the whole demand. I mean, you guys are masters of demand. It makes... It, it, it makes me realize and recognize the reality, which is that what we're doing is working. Sure. Despite the fact that it might not be the popular thing. I get it. So you know. we were talking about we were talking about huge demand for the shows and being born out of also talking about Freddy Krueger. Being born out of less shows per year. Well, is it born out of less shows per year or is it born out of just the band playing great, you know, I'm, and, and I mean that with as much humility as possible. The band is playing the best that we've played in years, and 
mm-hmm. that creates demand. That creates enormous demand. But look, supply and demand is a real thing. When we, when we stopped touring, I was really nervous about it. And I remember John and I sat down at one point, and he, he kind of was anticipating that if we played much less... The, and you know, but we're able to find a good balance with it—a a balance where we were performing really well. You know, if we were able to find a way to play less and perform great, that the shows would do better than if we were just constantly on tour because we were experiencing. I feel like when you're a smaller band and you have to continuously tour to stay alive, how do you balance that against? oversaturating markets and we were definitely oversaturating some markets you know not and not major markets we were oversaturating small markets b markets and c markets because we had to go everywhere three times a year to keep the machine rolling you know except for it was always really difficult to get you into tallahassee well (laughs) not florida so it wasn't really it wasn't really a it, it, it was a risk. It's like you're taking a risk when you say, okay, we're going to cut this back from 120 shows to 25. So we're going to you know, cut 80% of our shows out. And hopefully we're going to make up the income in those 25 shows. You know, or at least make up you know, the difference between what you're making and what you're spending. That's a, a and, huge and, risk to and take. And you got to add the fact that... it's a huge fear, but... What the reality is is that touring around the country is a massive expense. True. Yeah. And for these bands that are going out and touring and On trying to bring a real production and have the comfort of a bus or two buses and an 18-wheeler or two 18-wheelers and 14 hotel rooms every night and, you know, a $15,000 a week laser package, you know, or light lighting rigs that can run into the thirty dollars and $40,000 a week. Listen, you're not getting rich out there on the road. And this is the only way to make money for a musician these days. So what's the answer? If you can't make money touring... How about okay. musically though? When you're when you're on the road regularly, you're oiled. You're okay. So that's what pe- that's people's argument. You know, exhibit A for me would be I just walked through the venue, and on the way to get up to this podcast, I ran into our longtime lighting director Johnny Argood. Yes. And I looked at him and I go, "Hey, Johnny," and he gives me a hug and he goes, "Man, I can't stop listening to that show." And I'm like, "What show?" And he's like, oh, man, the cat, man. Saturday night at the cat. I've been listening to some of those. I can't stop listening to it. I was like, oh, like the Hope Waves. He's like, yeah, I mean, all of it. The whole thing. He's like, right now I'm in the jam from home back into helicopters. It's amazing. And this is a guy who's seen a thousand and something Disco Biscuit shows. Um, And he's hooked on the last one from two weeks ago. He's he's, He's listening to it on repeat. So to me... That tells me something. That tells me that people who really know the band the best of anybody out there, you know, are are judging what we're doing currently with very high regard. And the fans are too. And it shows in uh, online 
you know, you can tell when when people are really into what you're doing because they tell you, and it should. And and our fans aren't shy. If they don't love what we're doing, <laughs> oh, I know they won't. They're not. They don't, people don't fucking lie to us. Right. They tell us the truth. Sure. It, truth hurts. And no, but Luckily, you guys have right, always taken it, and I think that's one thing that's made you a better band, man. Because you know the reality of the matter is, is that this. It, you know, the truth is, is that if these people deserve the best, these people deserve for us to be playing in our top form all the time. Unfortunately, that's just not possible. This is art. But do you rehearse more because you're playing less? Do you find yourselves in... I will say that we found a balance with rehearsal where there was a time where we were over-rehearsing. We were rehearsing so much and coming out and not playing well at shows because we had just run through all of our great ideas with nobody in the room. (laughs) You know? Like, we're... There's such a thing as too much rehearsal, you know. I learned from Umphreys a long time ago. They don't rehearse at all, ever. They rehearse on the day of the show, and they take it really serious. Oh yeah, they they rehearse for three four hours. Well, we we like double that. We rehearse for four hours on the day of a show, and then you know if we have a day off, we come. You know if we're we're three or four nights in the same venue, so we'll come in every day at two p.m. and rehearse for four or five hours. You know, that's how we're getting things back in. But what we're not doing is running through all of our ideas. Off, the train I, is gone. Yes. We're back. We are and back. I, and it's an election year. I want to talk about headcount. Can you talk about Andy Bernstein? Can you talk about where the organization is now? And I saw in an interview. Before we go on to that, are sure. we done pontificating about going on fucking tour? I, you make a great point. I'm just wondering. And I understand you can call me all the fanboy you, you want. All the, you're just bringing, you're bringing up all the common arguments. I've heard it all. Oh, sure. And it's good to hear. You're t- it's giving you an opportunity to counter them. Well, I've countered them a million times. Everybody, like if you, were to, if, you, if, if you were to ever have been on my Facebook once, like it's like it was, it's not anymore because people get it now. Right. But like for three years, it was an everyday conversation where I'd have to go on and be like, you guys understand that if we were on tour, we would break up. Like, you know, yeah. it's like you have to dial it to where, you know, try to dial it in where you get the best performances and the most longevity, you know what I mean? But you guys are fortunate. You have that fan base uh, that you can do that. I mean, you Our can't... fan base is the fucking best. I'm sorry. You know, it's like almost cliche. Everybody's like, oh, best fan base, number one fans in the world. But, like, honestly... You know, like, our fan base takes so much shit from other fan bases. For years, they've been like, you know, it's been like a, a, a joke in the jam band scene about Disco Biscuit fans. Well, you have, you have and our mix. fans are the best. They are really, I don't know, like, if it's just a couple of people and how they acted for a short period of time that gave, you know, an overwhelming, you know, negative sort of perspective. Uh, Perception out in the greater jam band scene about what it, what this what it means to be a Disco Biscuits fan, but I'm with these people and I've been with them for 20 years and they're great, successful, and you create the fan base smart. that you want. Well, that's the thing. You have doctors right. and lawyers, right, you, and Wookies. You have the you you cover the the whole palette, right? But but so who who but so does. The dead. Yeah, but the thing is, with the way you break down the songs, the way you... you, uh, So does Fish. You change them around. You invert them. You do dyslexic versions of them. You do these incredible segues, and I think that draws a certain type of listener that can appreciate that, which is often involving subtlety, particularly with the segues, right? I saw a study that Disco Biscuit fans, this is for real, have the highest IQs 
aggregate of any of the other jam bands in the entire scene and possibly into other genres as well. You know, the, the, the professor Joey Lichter has always said that, uh, that I saw a real, real scientific study where they did like, a, I don't know how they pulled that off. Highest IQs across the board. And I'm, that doesn't surprise me at all. Because you look at a guy like John, who's in the band, and his IQ is off the charts. Yeah, yeah. So he I, wouldn't I even know. have to play music, right? He could he could make a living writing programs quite comfortably, right? Um, I don't know what it's like to be a, a programmer, a software um, engineer, but I think that it's what it, I think that it's a, a lot like just being in any sort of tech startup or any startup where you. It's really about fundraising. You know, you spend so much of your time fundraising. And I'm, I'm working in a startup in Philadelphia right now. And, I, and, and our meetings are fundraising, fundraising, fundraising the whole entire time. Prospectuses, financial projections, the whole entire time. It's about, you know, how, where are the distributions? How are the investors going to see their return on their investment? You know, how long is it going to take? Where's the profit going to start? You know, and it's just, I would imagine... For somebody like John, who's not going to take a job as a software programmer somewhere, he's going to invent a company like It's On Me, which is the company he invented, or like Splice, which is another company that he had the, idea, the original idea for, and Steve Mart- Mart- Martosi, who does GroupMe and Blade and all these other apps, you know, invented, you know, uh, built Splice out, which was one of John's ideas. So, you know, John's like an high IQ comes up with great ideas and then you know executes them himself so it's like he he's a he's his own boss he's always been his own boss so i don't foresee that he would you know so go make a living as a software programmer he's a risk taker he's a real risk taker so probably my guess and i don't know what it's like to be doing what he's doing but i i i have an idea because i'm trying to do it in a different industry but the the my guess would be that being in the Disco Biscuits and having a really great, solid, cult-like fan base that is always there to, to back us up and support us is something that is, you value highly. You know, I value it incredibly highly because I'm 43 years old. I have a lot of different interests, um, and I get to pursue a lot of different interests, including my charity work with Headcount, which we're about to segue into. And it, it, that being in the Disco Biscuits affords me the opportunity to try to make the world a better place, which is something that I always, you know, wanted to do. I wanted to make the world a, different, a better place. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that Sam Altman left the Disco Biscuits, because he felt like at that time, maybe we weren't... Uh, socially aware? We weren't... I don't know if it's as socially aware as, you know, we were... Socially involved. And I don't even know if it's about social involvement or engagement. It's about it's about making an example for the people who follow you. And and is that are you leaving the play, the world in a better place or in a, in a worse place? And maybe in two thousand and four, which was right when we were starting Headcount, but it hadn't turned into this this really you know socially. Um, positive force that it is in the music scene. I, I feel like there's a chance that you could look at your life at that point if you want to spend your life affecting people in a positive way and say, maybe I shouldn't be in a band. I, I look at it differently at 43. I didn't know how to reach people in a positive way when I was 23, you know, or 33 even. But, you know, one thing that I've been doing 
now. Uh, today was my 56th day in a row of running three miles a day every single day. And I post about it on Facebook. And a couple of the posts have gone, you know, mini viral. And what I've noticed over the last month and a half or two months of doing this is that while it might be annoying to some people for me to talk about my fitness accomplishments online, and it's almost annoying to me, not even almost, it is annoying to me. I don't want to be the kind of person who's like, check out how much I bench pressed or like, look at how far I ran or look how fast I am. I just, I normally keep that stuff to myself. I don't think people think of me as like a fitness guy, but I've, I've worked out a lot over the years. I also eat a lot. So I'm a bigger guy. And, um, but you could inspire others. Well, I was inspired to do this by somebody who was posting about it a lot on Facebook. Jake Snufferowski, who who is works at the Brooklyn Bowl. You probably want to get him on your blog as no, well. No, we, we were just talking about him yeah. with uh, Jefferson Waffle the other day. So, so Jay Snufferowski started running three miles a day, three for 31. He got to 31. He extended it to 62. I was watching him do it. And eventually I was like, man, three miles is doable. I, I, I run six miles or eight miles or 10 miles. You know, I've gone as far as 10 miles in my running career and um but three miles is doable it's fast you know it's not painful i could do that every day that's what i said to myself and so i started to do it 56 days ago every day and then after about 21 days i posted about it and it, it usually when i post stuff like that it doesn't get a lot of engagement but this did get a lot of engagement a lot of people were liking it and a lot of people were commenting that it was inspiring and so i did it again on day 31 and actually I'd have to say by now, day 55, I haven't posted in about two and a half, three weeks about it, but dozens of people have reached out to me. Probably as many as 75 people, I would estimate, have reached out to me on social media or through text or a phone call telling me that I've inspired them to start working out or to start running, including when I got to the gym earlier today, Magner was on the treadmill for his 16th day of running in a row. When I got down to get into the car, Alan walks up in a pair of running sneakers and running clothes. And I was like, Alan, are you running? And he's like, you inspired me, man. <laughs> Alan and yeah. Magner. And, and um, so many of my friends at home in Philly, my friend Mullane started running. My friend David just started running two days ago, have, have said that it's infectious that seeing somebody do something positive and seeing the way it changes their body and seeing the way it changes their mind and their attitude and just how happy I've been and energetic, it's, it's catching on. So what I'm realizing is that whatever limited reach I have out into the world, you know, my 20 something thousand Facebook fans on my personal page or the couple hundred thousand disco biscuit fans who have been supporting us. If I can reach out to them with positive messages, like let's, Engage. Let's vote. This is a great election year. We have an amazing election year coming up here. The, the, the people are fed up with establishment politics on the left and on the right. Yeah, and we had the two people who won New Hampshire got, took no money from Wall Street. It's remarkable. What, what, what Bernie Sanders has accomplished is remarkable. What 
Donald Trump has accomplished is remarkable. This is a remarkable situation that people cannot take any money from anybody, you know, other than in Bernie Sanders' case, small donors, and in Donald Trump's case, himself, you know, <laughs> and 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 go and do this. And Let me ask you this. I've seen in a couple of interviews recently you talked about that you, in your board meetings at Headcount, you've been uh, discussing the possibility of bringing more issues into what you do. Um, is that something you're moving forward on? Uh, have you started on that at all? Yeah, well, you know, it's the tricky thing is bringing issues onto the table and and staying nonpartisan on the issues. You know, that's the that's the the balance that we've always tried to find. So we try to tend to gear towards issues that people on both sides agree with, like money and politics. It doesn't matter what you are. Doesn't matter what color of the rainbow you are. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you come from. People want their vote to be represented by the government. That is the message here. People want their vote to be represented. They don't want to elect somebody who is then going to be beholden to the special interests of the corporations that are paying for their campaign re-election. And the reality is, is that what we have in government right now is a is a chronic campaign cycle. It's a never-ending campaign cycle where people are so dependent on raising money to get reelected that there's only there's only a couple of options. Term limits. That would quickly end the, you know, the 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 constant campaign cycle that's leaving people beholden to the, you know, to the special interests. Term limits. And again, this is an issue that's resonating on the right and it's resonating on the left. Mm-hmm. So uh, to us, for headcount, money and politics, that's an issue that we're all over. You know, in the early days of our country, people were going to politics at the end of their career. They would have already made their money. It was when being a politician became a career in and of itself that the problems began. Would you not agree? Listen, yes, I do agree with that. On Sunday in Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf signs a very comprehensive medical cannabis bill into law. After years of, uh, let's call it educating the representatives, um, we had speeches that were given by Democrats and by Republicans. And um, one of the Republicans, Senator Mike Fulmer, who was the co-sponsor of the bill with Senator Dalen Leach, got up there and he put his hands in the air and he said, we won. This is a Republican senator from one of the most conservative counties in, in what is considered one of the most conservative states in the country and undoubtedly the most conservative in the Northeast corridor. And it was a Republican who was standing there saying, we won. And when Senator Dalen Leach got up to give his speech, he gave a rousing victory speech. He's by far the best speaker of all of the people who got up to speak from the representatives. And what he said was, for, to paraphrase, he said, for a couple of minutes, we stopped being Democrats and we started being caregivers. We stopped being Republicans and we started being patients. We stopped being conservatives and liberals and we started to be compromisers. And that this is an example of government at work to come together on an issue that should not be a partisan issue and 
and do something that is going to make the lives of the population of people in the state better. That's government at work. This is to the, to the, the, to the apathetic out there. And I know that this is an issue that my constituency cares about. <laughs> so to those who are apathetic and tell me that the system is rigged and Hillary is a cheater and, and Bernie Sanders, if he, you know, if, if he doesn't get the nomination, I won't partake in politics or government. I mean, this is what I see in my news feed. I see a lot of people who are starting to feel disenfranchised by the fact that their very awesome candidate doesn't quite have the support nationally that he needs to get to the finish line. He might. I'm not pontificating on that, but I'm seeing this swelling of apathy Mm -hmm. amongst people who are the most engaged. This is the most engaged part of the country, you know, of, of the kids in politics, and they're threatening to disengage unless they're their candidate wins because of their hatred for the other candidate. Unfortunately for them, the other candidate is excessively strong in, in, um, in the majority of the Democratic Party. The, the progressive part of the Democratic Party is college-educated white liberals and the youth. And that's a slice of the Democratic Party that represented the, the progressive, you know, the progressive campaigns all the way back from Bill Bradley, Howard Dean, and I'm not meaning to, by far the most successful has been Bernie Sanders, besides, uh, let's say, another, ins- the, the most successful insurgency candidate in our history is probably Barack Obama, because, you know, he came in, in against an establishment candidate and won. But the difference between Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama is that Barack Obama was a moderate centrist candidate who was willing to play ball in the current establishment in order to get things done, which is not a bad thing. In fact, it probably makes him the best president of our lifetimes, in my, in my opinion, because he, he does know how to play the game. And he does he 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 does get shit done. So and uh, and hold on, I'll get you. I see you. I see you, and we'll get to it. <laughs> I I just want to say that the the thing that Bernie Sanders supporters, I think, and and who and on the on the on the Republican side, they already did this. This is something that has been done decades ago. Um, when Goldwater lost the election, the the conservative constituency of the Republican Party didn't bail on the mission the way that, say, I don't know, I don't want to say that Howard Dean supporters did because uh, Dean for America turns into move on pretty much. So that turned into a progressive movement that, that, stuck, that stuck. But in order for Bernie Sanders, if he doesn't win the nomination, to, for his supporters to really change the system, they would have to do what the Goldwater supporters did on the... Republican side in the 60s, which was infiltrate the system, become the establishment. It's it, become the system that you've been decrying so much for. And now I read an article on Slate that was absolutely fabulous that's called um, There Is No Bernie Sanders Movement. And at first I thought it was going to be like an anti-Bernie Sanders article. And in the end it was saying, look, if you really want to make a change, if you really want Bernie Sanders' message to resonate, then 
run for office on his platform on a local level right. and and infiltrate the system with with the progressive message don't bail if he loses don't disengage engage even more that's the message that i want to get out to my to my my followers who are bernie sanders followers is don't hate the system you know don't hate the game. Play the game. We can change the game. And like Barack Obama said on the Mark Maron podcast, all change is incremental. You have these ideals. You have these feelings and these wants. You can't get too frustrated and overreact and just give up. That's not going to do anything. You have to just keep be persistent and not expect rapid change. Well, the system is set up for incremental change only. It's called checks and balances. Yes. And the, the people who started this country set it up in a way where it, we wouldn't be able to have progressive, revolutionary change. And for better or for worse, a lot of people at this point think that's for worse. But, you know, I, I'm a little changing. bit older than a lot of people. I'm in my mid-40s, and I think, you know, that the system... Look, it's easy for me to say the system has been great for me. You know, it's not about me. That's why I'm in favor of paying more taxes, because, you know, in order to help the people that the system hasn't been good for. Because I was, you know, I was born into, you know, a middle-class family. I was... My parents... My, my parents... My mom struggled as a single mother to get me through private school when my father was out on the town not paying his child support, not paying any of this stuff, you know, kind of just being aloof at times. And my mom was working her ass off, struggling to, to, get, to, get, to give me the best opportunities. And then I got into Penn, and I went to Penn, and I met these geniuses and got into a band, and I've had a blessed life. So for me, no, it's not about me. It's about the people who haven't had such an easy go. I got it. This is more important than anything. More important than the fact that my son Zach went three for three with three RBIs, three runs scored, and and, and two stolen bases nice. yesterday. Here's I something to important. That end, but um, so proud. Leading up to the uh, election, can you talk about how important it is to volunteer immediately before the general election to just get on the phone and call the people who've registered and remind them to vote? And how listen, listen. Let me tell you this. <laughs> What we are proposing is that everybody could vote. Now, listen, what, the reality is, is that voter turnout is down for the Democrats. It's way up for the Republicans right now. But it's down. If you want to look at the Democrats, it's down from 2008 to 2016. And for all of the excitement around Bernie Sanders and his 36,000. And I'm not trying to, like, pop the Bernie Sanders bubble. I mean, you know, obviously this what, what's happening here on the Democratic side is remarkable. And it's not like, you know, I don't, I'm not like the mainstream media where New York comes along and Hillary Clinton wins her home state and suddenly we're popping the Bernie Sanders bubble. We're, we're talking about realistically what's happening here, you know. And what's happening here is that... Um, What's happening is that despite the fact that there's these gigantic massive rallies, voter turnout is down on the Democratic side. So why? Is it just because we've had eight years of a Democratic president and maybe people don't have the perception that the hope and change that they thought they were going to get happened? Even though, yeah, but why? Does the town have a president? There's been been massive change. If if you just want to look basically at the facts and the numbers... Well, no one does that. The Come economy, on. <laughs> the unemployment, 
you know, the Dow, all of the little things that are the indicators of, you know, of how America is doing, that if those numbers were bad right now, the, 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 the right would be blowing them up, you know what I mean? But, like, things are, in terms of th- those numbers, are pretty good, you know? But there's this general sense that the hope and change, maybe, that we were being sold didn't come, even though in my in my my personal, I'm not talking for headcount now. You know, my personal Mark Brown scene of the Disco Biscuits. My personal feeling is things were we were in the midst of a of what is now referred to as the Great Recession. It was very very scary financially for everybody. It was very scary for me. Things were there. Everything was in free fall. Your the, the price of your house was in free fall. You know your mortgage was going under. All of any your four hundred one k's or your IRAs or everything was completely liquidated. It was very fucking scary in two thousand and eight. The financial meltdown. If you had any money, it was scary. <laughs> you know for everybody. So I'm for me. It's it's different now. It, it truly is not. The Dow isn't dropping by 800 points a day. People aren't freaking out. There's a sense of stability. It's still incredibly hard for people who come out of college to get jobs. It's incredibly hard. There's a, even though the unemployment is way down, it is very hard to get a job. And I think that from what I've heard, there's a sense of entitlement amongst people that they don't have to intern or work at, I, I got a guy at the gym who's 22 years old, and I said, hey, have you gone over to McDonald's? And just, he, he comes into the gym every day. I'm like, do you have a job? He doesn't. And I'm like, go to McDonald's. And he's like, McDonald's, that's definitely beneath me. And I'm like, wow, this guy's going nowhere because I worked way worse jobs than working at McDonald's when I was that age. And any know? job you have, you can learn something. And it's a job. You can become the manager and then get, you know, I have a friend who worked in the Apple store on the floor. It's cool. People like working in the Apple store. They treat you, treat you well. It's a good job. It's not McDonald's, but it, the pay's not high. But the guy worked hard, and then he got transferred to Denver. Then he got transferred to Cupertino because he just worked hard, and he, and he took his retail job where he was st- probably started not much more than minimum wage. He took it seriously. He's a smart kid, and now he works at Apple Corporate. Pretty fucking big jump from the floor of the Apple store to corporate in Cupertino. But it's an attitude that this one kid had that I'm just going to take whatever job I can get and work really hard at it. And even if it's not something that has a huge ceiling, Mm -hmm. well, guess what? It turned into a huge ceiling. There's no... You could do, and if you work hard, you can accomplish anything. We have almost ten thousand volunteers at Headcount, and as with everything, the cream of the crop rises to the top. Yeah, you got to create the value cream. For when the, when that when those kids work super hard, we invariably they have worked their ways into salary jobs at Headcount, and then many many of them have been gone on to be placed into positions with the managers and the festivals and the venue promoters that are all on the headcount board of directors. There's so many people involved with headcount, so many bands that these, these great 
people come in and they volunteer. And oftentimes, if they work really hard, they turn it into a career. And, you know, it reminds me of when my wife wanted to become a marine biologist and we moved out to Santa Cruz and she identified that she wanted to work at the California Department of Fish and Game on sea otter research. And she went there and she told them that she would like to apply for an internship. And she got an internship. And within six months, she was running the place paid. You know what I mean? Well, that's, it's that's like, the secret right there, though. you just got to put yourself in the way of opportunity. Right, Opportunities so exist. If you are it's badass It's hard to get good, a job, but I think It's that, hard, but you got to put yourself out there. you got to put yourself in a place where you can create value. I don't know what it's like to be coming out of college right now, although I might because I'm thinking of going back <laughs> and finishing college. So I might find out pretty soon what it's like to be coming out as a college. What would you study? Uh, well, I want to finish my degree in anthropology. I have about five classes left today. I love wow. anthropology. It's one of my favorite yeah. subjects. I don't know if I have what it takes to be a college graduate at this point, but I'm going to try. I, I went and talked to some people at Penn, and I have um, the balls in my court to make an appointment with the anthropology department, and I'm planning on doing it in the next couple of weeks. I have to overcome my resistance. As with everything in life, you know, there's resistance to accomplishing any goal. Every goal, you're, you know, there's your inner devil that's, you know. Well, as long as you put Facebook, we'll be there to support you. Uh, that one, I don't know if that one's going to go up on <laughs> Facebook. But maybe. Well, I just put it on a fucking podcast. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? God damn it, Brownstein. Well, all right, come on. Let's talk about Mickey and Bill. Cause, uh, because this is this man needs Mickey and he Bill. Needs it. He needs yeah, his fill on Mickey and Bill. What do you want to know? It was pretty special to see you guys play with him. Now, when you uh, sit down, yeah. do they come with the arrangements and the songs they want to play? Or do you say, here's here's how we'd like to do... You know, it, was, it was a long process. You know, with Bill, it's kind of like we had Benji... Benji, Benji Eisen, Eisen. <laughs> who the, was Bill's manager at the time. Is he great writer? Long, Wait, is he not Long anymore? time. Um, he, no, he, he, got, he got fired. No, I, he's kind of like, he was with Amy and Bill last week. I don't know what the situation is. I don't want to speak about he's his relationship with Bill. He's a Billographer. I, I don't know. He wrote, book, he, he wrote the book. He's a New writer, Times brilliant schemer. Seller. I don't know if he's a manager. I don't think he has the breadth of knowledge to be a manager, right? Well, That's a tricky thing. <laughs> Let me tell you something. He just had to hang he out on a, the stage. He did a pretty fucking good job with Bill Kortzman's career. Put Look together what, an excellent man. You Look at what point. he did. You, you know a, what I mean? Yes, it's, absolutely. What does it take to be a manager like that? To me, Benji is the best manager I've seen in the last couple of years. He's the best manager I've seen. I don't know about day to day, but vision, incredible. It takes vision to be a manager. Execution. He did it all. He had vision. He executed it. So, you know, I don't know what's going on on the internal stuff, but, like, man, Benji was there, and he made it so easy. We de- I deal with a million managers, okay, because we manage our own band. So when we're, when we're doing Dominican holidays, you know, uh, it's the manager of this band, the manager of that band, the promoters, and me. That's the conference call, you know, and it's like, you know, I'll tell you, those guys are some of the best managers in the business, the guys that I get on that call with. And they're unbelievable. Benji, toe-to-toe, given the fact that he has had zero experience, dealing with him was a pleasure. He always was able to get the job done in terms of selling what he needed to to his artist or getting his artist to know what was going on. He just always... It was a pleasure dealing with Benji and Bill and Howard, who's Mickey's manager. Same thing. Howard Cohen. Okay. So Howard Cohen... I was going to say Howard Levy, which is another Jewish name, and that's one of that was the Flecto. The Flecto. Yeah, I know. It's like not Howard Levy. Howard Cohn, another guy that was a pleasure to deal with, easy to talk to, easy to convey information. But what happened with Mickey, which was cool, was like Howard got in contact with us when we were starting to plan this out, and he's like, Mickey wants to talk to you guys. And we're like, oh. 
okay. And he's like, we're going to do a call tomorrow, you know, whatever. So 2 o'clock, rolls around, we call, we get on the phone, and Mickey gets on the phone, and Mickey's like, listen, I want to be really involved in this process, okay? Because... I'm going to be up there, and I've got my D-beam, and I've got all this other equipment, and it's not just as easy. You know, with Bill, he's like, with Bill, it's like, here's the songs, great, play drums. With me, i got all this stuff I really have to prepare. I really need to take time to figure out, especially with your songs, what, how, how the D-beam's going to work, where's the right spot, where are we doing drum space. So we had a couple of really cool conversations with Mickey Hart. It was very cool. And, you know, I... I Listen, these guys are rock stars. These is, this is bona fide rock stardom. I, you know, like I'll go to like a family event and like, you know, I was at a shiver earlier this week and like this woman was like, come over here, come over. Now, did you meet? This is that is Seth's me- mother? This uh. is Mark. He's a rock star. You might have heard like, of the Disco Biscuits. And she did. And it was kind of like being a rock star for that one little tiny quick moment. But I was like, mm, we like to refer to ourselves as musicians. But appreciate what you're saying. He's not a this doctor. is bona fide rock stars. They've sold out Giant Stadium many times. These are, these, these, so you get, you get the sense that dealing with them is going to be a little quirky. And at times it is. Because if it wasn't, that would be weird. They're fucking rock stars. You know, so it gets quirky at times, you know, but dealing with guys who have sold, you know, God knows if I've ever sold out Giant Stadium, I'm going to be making some weird requests and stuff, you know. <laughs> to what extent were they familiar with Disco Biscuits music or any of the songs? Well, going in. Well, Billy, you got to keep in mind that Benji was with him Billy for a while, sat so. on Billy Billy sat on the beach for four years with Benji taking acid, listening to Grateful Dead music and like every like fourth show he would slip a biscuit show in <laughs> you know and so billy was somewhat familiar with the music going in because you know his right hand man was was a diehard fan um mickey i think you know he's a, a consummate professional so and and one of the things that mickey you may or may not know he's works for President Obama, and when when the White House will reach out to Mickey every month and they'll say Obama is going to Kenya this month or whatever, Obama's going to you know um, Islamabad or uh, Obama's going to you know Jakarta, and so Mickey will be like, okay, um, he'll 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 give him information on the native all music? kinds of information on the native music nice the culture the arts all around the world wherever he does so that when obama gets there he has a little bit of background information he's on whatever musicologist had no clue he's obama's ethnomusicologist and he still works at the smithsonian right and he works at the smithsonian and so he he's an inc- he's a consummate professional he's a very very smart guy very knowledgeable so you know you give mickey hart a couple songs you know he's going to get the job done um I think that it's you never know what you're going to get when you take four guys like us and put us on stage well, then at all. Then you take it, put into the mix two of these other guys. And so it was an interesting experience. And I think that for me, it was great. And I was excited to get to do it at Red Rocks again. But that one you would say came off a little better than the vibes musically? Well, I felt like I don't know that it came off better musically per se i think that it did i think the fans enjoyed it better but i I think that we just went into it knowing what to expect knowing what the process was the first time we did this with them it was cold we kind of came in the week of and it was like oh here we are i I was able to prepare um 
a lot better for the second one because I knew just how much preparation needed to actually go into this. I knew what it was going to be like to play with these guys. But given that so much of it is improvisation and you guys hadn't played before, how do you negotiate that on the fly? Are, they, are, you, are you just leading and they're going with you? or, or you know, I, I can't even imagine. The, after the first night, Mickey took us aside and was like, hey, when we play on Saturday, this was at 9.30 Club, can we do this a little bit more with the tempo? Like, you know, the first night was like a little too stagnant for him. And so the second night we mixed the tempo way up. You know, we went all over the place. And I think the third time we did it, we kind of found the right balance between those two things. And, you know, it, it, look, we played Terrapin at Red Rocks. It was cool. Like, is it a little like, you know, gimmicky? I don't think so. <laughs> How, I, got to, have, I got to play Terrapin with Billy and Mickey yeah. at Red Rocks. Who would have know? thought that, that you would be playing with uh, members of the Grateful Dead or Tommy Hamilton would be playing? Tommy's been that's doing another, a wonderful job. And that's another thing is that Tommy was at the Red Rocks and having that second guitar and the extra vocal, I think, really takes the Grateful Dead stuff to a different level for us. How have you changed as a band since playing with them? Well, let's see. If you look at the timeline... Arguably, that was when things really started to to grow. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it until right now, but we've been selling out every single show pretty much since then. Are you seeing I don't know if maybe... You know, we thought beforehand, <coughs> wow, this is something that could grow our career probably. We're going to reach a lot of people. Maybe this is something that could grow us at a time where we're not putting out new music or whatever. We could reach a whole new audience and... Shit, maybe that happened. You know, there, it's a combination of, of a, a, a confluence of events of, you know, the band's playing better. We've gotten out in front of more people. You know, we, we did the Dear Jerry show where we played mm-hmm. with Tommy and Billy there. And we really there was a Merryweather, right? That was a Merryweather. Yeah. And it was like 25,000 people. And we had 12 minutes and we killed it. And, and a lot of people, the Washington Post called it the highlight of the show. Oh, yeah. And... That, that's 25,000 people, man. So, Are you, you know, see? even if a couple hundred of them start coming exactly. to see you. Well, plus all the people watching, all the recordings that get around. Are Go you ahead, see, Are you seeing in your fan base and your audiences at the shows, you're seeing an older crowd, some, you know, some more of the deadheads that well, maybe didn't really check you guys out before? We're seeing an older crowd. Well, that's because we're all we're getting, getting older. older. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but are you seeing uh, you know, more I don't know. It's hard for me to show. see what's going on, on out there. I try, at this point, you know, because now I play sober and I like, you know, I have like this whole kind of new healthful kind of way of thinking. I get on there. The first time that I sing during the night, I think to myself instantly, ah, it's so amazing to be this clear-headed while, you know, like I'm probably the most clear-headed person in this whole room right now. And, and I just sort of bl- say a blessing for, you know, in, in, for, the, for that fact, for the fact that I've made it to the, I've made it through the hard parts, you know, physically in terms of, you know, the partying and stuff. And I've come out on the other side. I don't, miss it i'm not like so i'm not like sober like and i didn't go to rehab i just stopped doing you stopped partying you know and and um you know it's it's my whole life is is the healthiest i've ever been i ran three miles in 23 minutes and 30 seconds today that's a seven minute and 50 second mile for three sustained that's crazy i couldn't have done that when i was 20 25 30 35 any of those ages so to me right now i just feel like i'm the healthiest i've been i i'm i'm the most inspired i've been to to work hard and you know whether it's the band or the charity or my startup or whatever it is like i feel you know or my kids or whatever it is i feel like the 
the most present that I've been in in years, and it feels good. I feel like you know. Well, we're running out of time. We haven't talked about Electron or Conspirator or your DJ work at all. Can we, you? Don't, we don't have any time for we it. Don't. Oh, we're done? Yeah. I thank you I so much. That, I wish that it's I had more time. You're going to do it again? You're going to come on again? Yeah, I'll come on with you guys. I'll well, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be at festivals this summer. Maybe guys, we'll do something at the Dominican Holidays. Pleasure. What do you say we do something at the pool at Dominican Holidays? I love that Yeah, idea. sound good? Should we do it with speakers so yeah. people can listen to sure. it? Absolutely. Alive. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming. Really looking forward to your show tonight. Great. And tomorrow. Great. And tomorrow I'm going to be doing a, a panel of one myself at, at this 420 Sweetwater Festival. I know that this isn't going to air before then. It no. But, um, we'll put the word out. Though. But so you is guys, it a panel on Passover? But you guys should, oh, you, you should attend. Panel on Passover. Ugh. It's time to pass over that panel. I know. Well, listen, if there's one thing that we've pro- proven, it's that this is where we like to be. If we're going to be, if we're going to be playing on Passover, we like to be in the South. Because we did the Bisco Seder, if you, all, if you don't remember. Uh, we did a very Bisco Seder. And speaking of Benji, he's the one that put the Haggadah together for that. Do and, we uh, still pass it around? It still goes around, yeah. It really does. It really does. Everybody, bust out your Bisco Haggadahs. And one, all right, guys. One last thing before one, we leave. You can still volunteer for headcount, even if just a call before the general election to remind people to vote. Do that. Really do that. And take it further than that. Let's not stop. You know, let's... Let's fight. The support's there. Now just go ahead and... Let's fight. And I don't care. I'm not, I mean, I don't. if you're on the left or you're on the right, don't give up. Keep fighting. Stay engaged. Don't, don't let apathy win. Apathy is dead-end street. I love you. Thank you, Mark. Right, thank Bye. you, Mark. Have a good night.